Tonight on Farage, 50,000 people have now crossed the English Channel in small dinghies. All this after a Brexit vote and a thumping Tory majority. I'm asking the question tonight, have we taken back control? I'll be joined by the former head of UK Border Force, a prominent QC and specialist in EU law. I'll be joined by GB News' own Liam Halligan to talk about the interest rate rises, what it means for you at home. And joining me on Talking Pints, Justin Hughes, the former leader of the Red Arrows turned entrepreneur and investor in cryptocurrencies. We're in for a wild ride. Good evening. It'll be six years next week since we voted to leave the European Union. Take back control. That was a slogan, not just for that referendum. Many of us who'd fought to leave the EU had been using that phrase for many a year. That was the whole point. Get back control of your country and its borders. And you might make good decisions. You might make bad decisions, but they'd be your decisions and made by people you can vote for and people that you can remove. But there's no doubt in my mind that the reason that the turnout was as high in the referendum as it was, was this whole question of immigration, be it legal numbers or, even more contentiously, illegal numbers. It almost beggars belief that last night we passed the number 50,000. That is how many people have crossed the English Channel in small boats and been detected. I'm sure there are plenty more that haven't been detected. 50,000. It started with a trickle of boats in 2018. And last night at 10 minutes to midnight, the Dungeness lifeboat came in, in the pitch black. And you can see these pictures on your screens if you're watching on television. At least another 40 were on board. As we went to air, the Dover lifeboat was sent out to the Sandetti. And there's a boat there with 50 on. I don't know today's numbers as yet, but it will be at least 200 again today. At least 200, perhaps many, many more than that. So have we taken back control? Well, I don't think we have, and I sense that there are others out there beginning to wake up to this. I had been amazed over the last two years how little The Sun newspaper had covered this, but no, today's front page, very, very clear, plain crazy. Hundreds of migrants get here in one day, yet hotel rooms in Rwanda sit empty. I can't think of a greater kick in the teeth to British sovereignty than that decision taken by a judge in Strasbourg at 10 o'clock the other evening to stop that plane leaving for Rwanda. We still, by the way, don't even know the name of the judge that made that decision. So that's my audience question to you at home. Have we taken back control? Let me know what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. As far as I'm concerned, we haven't at all. Whether it's on this border question, whether it's on the status of Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. Now, my view, my view very strongly, is we need to complete Brexit. And I was fascinated to see the Sun newspaper in its editorial today saying we must leave this too, by which they mean the ECHR. That will not be as straightforward as it seems for reasons that Tony Blair left behind with the constitutional settlements. We'll come to that as the show develops. But joining me now, somebody who's appeared before on this programme, Tony Smith, CBE, former Director General of UK Border Force, now a Border Security Consultant. 
I guess it's quite a busy time if you got that job, isn't it? Well, absolutely, Nigel. As we said before, this has been, I hadn't known as busy a period as this for a long, long time, particularly in the areas that we're talking about as immigration and border control and these maritime uh, incursions that we're seeing more and more of. It's been a very, very busy period for the border force and my former colleagues out there. Quick thought before we get on to Dover and the, and the fact that the, the number 50,000 mm. has been reached, which I think is going to be a big wake up call. Yeah. Numbers have that effect. Mm. There was another incident this week that took place down in Devon. At Slapton Sands, what do we know? Well, I think people need to realise in, in, in the wake of all this huge fuss about asylum that we're still protecting our borders from other things, Nigel. The cutters that we've got, actually, the customs cutters, were originally designed to pick up bags of drugs that were being dropped yeah. across the coast. We work with the National Crime Agency with customs, and I think what's happened there, they don't want to be found. There are people who are organised criminals. I suspect this is a different operation. I suspect this is probably Eastern European gangs who potentially could be stopped and sent back uh, because they're not going to claim asylum here, but they're not here for that. They're doing something else, and I think that's much more sinister and so much more worrying. Men, Twelve men are dropped off on the beach, slapped on sands, disappear into waiting cars, and they're gone. Uh, so the waiting cars is a clue. Um, the fact that it's a remote beach is another clue. If they were asylum seekers, why bother? Because you could come across the short straits and be picked up by the border force. So I mm. think this is different. And I think the facts are going to come out yet. But I think just people need to realise border protection is about border protection, not just immigration. No, no, it's about a... security, criminality. And, and all of those things the border force has to do. But, of course, they're completely distracted, as you know, Nigel, by the, by the crossings and the continuing up, upsurge in, 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 in these small boat arrivals where we're, we're essentially bringing people ashore um, because we're saving lives and and people are going to drown if we don't do that. But we're not able to return anybody anymore. This is what I think people need to understand. And I I, I can remember when we were sending people back, actually, who were coming across from France in quite big numbers because, you know, they weren't fearing persecution in France. Quite a lot of countries would take people back if we said, I'm sorry, you don't qualify to stay. But the returns numbers, as I understand them, are at all-time low. The government has lost the capacity to return anybody. And I think that's when we get into the debate about Rwanda. Well, why Ooh. Rwanda? Well, because it is a country they found. So was it a good idea? Well, well, they had to find a country, Nigel, somewhere that we could send people to. If you can't send people back to Europe, where they came through, safe countries, you can't send them back, even if they don't qualify for asylum. Many countries will not document their own nationals now. So we can't get them on planes to send them back to their own countries either. So the government are looking at us, well, is there another option? Mm. And they've been looking at countries, other countries, based loosely on the Australian model of Nauru. Is there a place we can send people to which would disincentivise the smuggling gangs, because actually their ambition is to come and stay in the UK. That's not going to happen under the Rwanda plan. As you know, the problem with the Rwanda plan is we haven't been able to get the aircraft off the ground with anybody to show. Well, we but, had a judge. Uh, we, we had a judge in Strasbourg. Now, there were lots of other uh, claims that had gone on already, but we had a, a judge in Strasbourg the other night, part of the European Court of Human Rights, mm. that said, no, you know, you've got to rethink all of this. It mm. can't happen. Mm. Are we going to be able to put a Rwanda plan or anything along the lines that Australia did into practice all the while we're part of the ECHR. Yes, so I think another 
another point to make, Nigel, is, 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 is this has been going for a long time. It's playing out very publicly now in headlines, but I know this has been playing out for a long time in immigration enforcement, that the normal policy now for enforcement officers is they will be told to go and arrest somebody. They'll be told they're removed already. That's quite a big operation. Mm-hmm. You have to go and get people into detention. You have to get their documents. You have to find flights. You have to... Lots and lots of money and work spent, but the expectation almost is now that when you get close to the steps of the aircraft, this is going to be stopped. And it's not going to be stopped because of the Home Secretary or the Home Office. It's going to be stopped because of an intervention by the courts, usually on grounds of, of human rights or, or, or asylum. But all or of this, but so all you, of this. I mean, the Human Rights Act was the European Convention on Human Rights being put into UK law by Tony Blair. I'm asking you the question again. Are we going to be able to actually take back control? Because clearly we haven't got it at the moment. Are we going to be able to do that all the while we're still signed up to ECHR? I'm not sure we can, Nigel, because we need to be able to interpret human rights. And these are conventions going back to the 50s in a way that meets the public interest. So what is in the public interest to do about the migrant crisis now? It must be first and foremost to stop the smugglers and stop the boats coming across. But if we're saying, well, we can't do that because an interpretation has been put upon our immigration and asylum laws by a European court, which is what we've termed, I did some work at the policy exchange on us on judicial yeah. overreach if you like where judges have constantly come up with new judgments so well actually no that's not right you know is it it's not illegal to claim asylum it's not illegal to come you can't send people that we slavishly followed those rules nigel for a long time and this means that immigration control in terms of returns has been diminished by the by the intervention of the international uh, justice system yes so the challenge is can we not reinterpret the international order? I don't think anybody wants to rip up human rights. I mean, we were the founders of human rights after the war. So I think everyone's got a human rights in their, in their soul. Yes, but I, think the, but, I, I think the question here is, I mean, are we not capable of providing our own level of freedoms, protections and human rights? The country of Magna Carta, the country actually that's got one of the best and fairest and least corrupt judicial systems in the world. But we need to look at it in the context of 2022. Not in the context of 1951. Mm. We can understand why this happened in 1951. Yes. I think people can, who are as yes. old as me anyway, can fully understand what happened, why that was in those days. But now, what's happened is that this, this, this sort of permeability of human rights law and international law into human rights means that we cannot really control our borders, I'm afraid. Not as a, so everybody's you know, having a go at the Home Secretary, at the Home mm. Office, and all of these things. But actually, you would think the government you know, here... They were absolutely sovereign and could make decisions. We're finding we can't. You know, this no, is a government. No. They, passed a new, they passed a new law here to say we can actually. So we take, but, 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 I mean, we haven't enacted it yet how, because we haven't have been we able taken to... taken back control? No, I'm afraid we haven't. Not yet. But hopefully there's still hope, Nigel. There's still hope. Tony Smith, CBE, we will come back to this question because I have no doubt that in the weeks to come, the numbers crossing the channel will reach record numbers. In a moment, I will discuss with Martin Howe QC the complexities of ECHR, how easy or difficult it would be for us to leave it, whether he thinks Boris Johnson is prepared to leave it. And on the economic front, we're now being told that inflation will go to 11% by October. In line with that, the Bank of England have put up interest rates today. Is the Bank of England, are the government actually in control of what's going to happen economically over the course of the next few months? Back with you in two minutes.
joining me to discuss this issue, have we taken back control, is a man who very much wanted in the referendum and ever since to take back control. It's Martin Howe QC, a barrister specialising in EU law. And of course, you chaired the pro-Brexit group Lawyers for Britain. I did and still do. And there's and still, still do. Work, and there's still work for us to do, I fear. Well, yes, and that's the topic of my debate tonight, really. Have we taken back control? And I, I, I made the point at the top of the show that taking back control wasn't just something that was said in the, in the referendum campaign. Those of us that have wanted to leave the EU have been using phrases like that for a very, very long time. I was talking just a moment ago with Tony Smith, the former mm. boss of the UK Border Force, about the judgment that came out of Strasbourg at five past ten yes. at night from a judge whose name we still don't even know. So when it comes to borders, when it comes to uh, deporting people, we haven't taken back control, have we? Well, no, that's right. I, I mean, we've taken back quite a lot of control. Uh, having left the European Union, of course, we, there is no longer a right for every person, every citizen of any European Union country to come here automatically. Mm -hmm. To come here, they have to go through our immigration processes. Uh, but uh, what we haven't got back control of uh, is the law under the European Convention on Human Rights. And, of course, many people think this is all an EU thing, but, in fact, it isn't. It's quite a separate uh, convention and separate organisation. It's not that separate, is it? Well, there's, there's a lot of cultural connection I mean, between I could, it. But... When I was an MEP, I could walk from well, the European Parliament into the European Court of Human Rights just through a series of corridors. Well, well, well indeed. I mean, it is in Strasbourg. Yeah. But, um, I mean, it is a separate organisation with uh, actually a majority of its member states are not in the EU. But um, it, it still suffers from many similar problems. Uh, I, I mean, what we saw uh, with the Rwanda flight was, was really uh, quite disgraceful because uh, our courts, um, all, all these people had various human rights claims or, or similar claims under the Refugee Convention, uh, and they, were, okay, they, they present these claims and they were due to be adjudicated in due course. The issue the judges were dealing with is should the flight go ahead... Um, and the point is, the flight goes ahead. It doesn't mean their claim is then lost, it, because they can be brought back from Rwanda if they win. Uh, and uh, our judges thought that was a perfectly fair so, way... And that went to the Supreme Court. And, and indeed, it went up to the Supreme Court, who didn't intervene. And um, somebody, one person, whose name we don't know in Strasbourg can say, whoa, this can't happen. Well, well it's very disturbing. Um, I mean, I so mean, what but, should we do, Martin? Well, but, but, we, I, mean, I mean, I take the view, and I've taken the view mm. all the way through, that whilst Rwanda would be a very, very good way of, 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 of putting out a big message, you know, it's not worth giving €5,000 to the trafficker, be a big disincentive. I said from the start, I couldn't see a single person going to Rwanda because of ECHR or because of the Human Rights Act, which, of course, brought ECHR into UK law. I believe we should leave ECHR. I was fascinated to see the Sun newspaper editorial today now saying that as well. What's your view? Well, in fact, by, by chance, next week, um, Dominic Raab will be publishing his bill um, on, on a UK Bill of Rights, uh, which uh, his policy is not actually to leave the ECHR. No, it's, it's to fiddle around the edges. It, it, it's to fiddle around, and, it, and it's actually to diminish um, the, uh, some of the 
untoward interventions by the judges in the what Strasbourg would you, courts. What would you like to do? Well, I, I, I think his bill is, is worth supporting so far as it goes. And I think that um, what's important in the light of this Rwanda business is that they expressly exclude uh, our courts from having regard to these uh, inter interim indications. Um, all, all the newspapers said it was an injunction by oh. the Strasbourg court, <clears throat> or by the judge at Strasbourg. It wasn't. It was not an injunction. They have no power at all to make injunctions. Well, we'll see. I'm... Um, but We'll see. I think it's fiddling around the edges. Well, uh, just, just let me finish. I, I regard that as very much an interim step mm. because uh, I, I, I think that there has been so much, obviously, bandwidth occupied by the whole Brexit process. It's, it's understandable that the convention problems have been put a bit on the back burner. Do you understand how little time Boris Johnson has with the oh. great British voting public, the Red Wall, people like this? They want to see some action. And, people, and, and people living in Northern Ireland, of course, feel completely mm. cut off. And I, know, I know you've been working hard on the protocol, and, and your views are very clear that we should say, look, this is not working. But do you actually think, when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, there are people like you there advising the UK government you strong, passionate Brexiteer and believer in independence, which you are. Do you actually think Boris Johnson is going to do these things? Well, we have yet to see. Um, I mean, he has published the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Mm -hmm. If that is carried into law, it will actually solve most of the problems of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, so what, what we have to see is actual determination to carry that through. Um, and that... Uh, if that goes through, that will actually pull Northern Ireland out of being uh, yeah. what it is at present, which is still effectively inside the European Union for many purposes. Final thought. We're almost exactly six years on mm -hmm. from the referendum. Have we taken back control? We have taken back the ability to take back control. Well, why haven't we, we haven't done yet it? Exercise it. <laughs> right. We, 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 we've got. Let, let me make a particular point. One of the things done was to convert all existing EU laws and regulations into so-called retained EU law. Uh, that that had to be done because otherwise there'd be voids in the law. Things would just you know not yeah. be covered by law. And that was done as a temporary measure while things were to be reviewed and replaced by British law. Now, almost nothing has been done, very little, and it is now time. That process has to be speeded up. Um, you know, law students are still required to study EU law as a compulsory part oh, of their course. And I know in 35 years' time, they'll still have to do that unless we get on with it. Martin Howe, thank you for joining me. Well, a very impassioned plea there from a keen Brexiteer for something to happen and happen PDQ, but goodness me, we can't wait forever. Now, next week, next week, it is going to be absolute murder in many parts of the country if you want to travel around because we have the rail strikes on Tuesday, the 21st of June, Thursday, the 23rd of June, and Saturday, the 25th of June. There will be some rail services running, perhaps around about 50. 15% of them, but nothing very early in the morning or late at night. But the way these strikes have been organised uh, is such that it will provide maximum disruption because of shifts and where trains are going to be already. We've had the warning from the health secretary, Sajid Javid, that as a result of this, we are going to see 
operations postponed or cancelled. And all of this on the day when we've learnt the NHS waiting list has now gone up to 6.5 million. It is going up roughly 100,000 procedures every single month. This rail strike not helping any of this. And yes, the rail strikers want 10% pay rises. Everyone does. It's just that it can't happen. They want to guarantee that everyone keeps their job, but there are fewer people using the railways, and we've had to use billions of pounds of taxpayers' money to bail them out. So much of what is being asked for there is actually completely and utterly unrealistic. Now, on other news, some pretty extraordinary events taking place, again, you know, within uh, the world of tennis. You remember back in the January, the Australian Open, I went out to Serbia. I was there with the Djokovic family. The reason was he'd flown into Australia, believing he complied with the rules, was put under house arrest and not allowed to play in the Australian Open. And the reason for that was he hadn't had the vaccination. We then go on to Wimbledon, which I've talked about before, which has now brought itself so utterly and totally into disrepute because it's banned players who were born in Belarus or Russia, and there are top male and female players from both of those countries, um, even though they're not going to represent their countries just because of the place of their birth, they have been banned. And, you know, because of this, Wimbledon has now been downgraded so that whoever wins Wimbledon will not get points towards world rankings. And now the US Open. The US Open have decided that Russian and Belarusian players can play in the US Open, but that Novak Djokovic cannot play in the US Open because he hasn't had the vaccine. This is madness. There are no health grounds to back this up whatsoever. Indeed, I have to say, I argued strongly here with doctors as to whether I should have the booster. I concluded in the end I shouldn't have the booster. And the reason is very simple. Whether you've had the vaccine or not, you can still catch COVID. Whether you've had the vaccine or not, you can still spread COVID. The argument for having the vaccine is if you get it, you will be less ill. But bear in mind, Novak Djokovic is one of the healthiest 35-year-olds living in the world today. He's got full health insurance. There is absolutely no way he will present any burden of any kind at all to the US authorities. This isn't about health. It's about control. It's about Dr Fauci. The man that's been running U.S. health policy. Well, here's something for you. Dr. Fauci, who has now had four doses of the vaccine, it's been announced overnight that Dr. Fauci will not be carrying out public duties for the next few days because, yes, you've guessed it, he's caught COVID-19. On last night's show, and it is a real what the Farage moment, on last night's show, just before we came on air, Lord Guite resigned as the government's ethics advisor. He had clearly been under a great deal of pressure. In his resignation letter to the Prime Minister, he says that he has been put 
in an odious position. It's a really incredibly strong word to use. He complains about the Prime Minister's behaviour. He complains about the Prime Minister's lack of leadership. He complains that the Prime Minister potentially was getting involved, getting him involved in some trade issues uh, that, as he saw it, would breach international agreements. He's gone. That is the second ethics adviser that has resigned. Sir Alistair Allen was the previous one. The second ethics adviser that has resigned under Boris Johnson's premiership. And the real what the Farage moment, I think, is that now, almost unbelievably, the Prime Minister will not say whether there is going to be a replacement or not. So we could finish up in a situation where there is no ethics adviser. But I guess, Boris, if they all resign, there isn't really much point in having one, is there? And something else to think about with the Conservative Party. And by the way, giving you these stories doesn't mean I'm in any way supporting Labour. Actually, when it comes to cross-channel migrants, when it comes to the economy, they've got even less of a clue than the Conservative Party. But I do feel the Conservative Party is appallingly run. It doesn't feel fit to run this country. And, and you know, a very, very good example is the Conservative candidate in Wakefield. And I'll explain about him in a moment. Now, your thoughts coming in. Have we taken back control? Tony Smith, the Border Force, former boss of Border Force, very clear, no. Martin Howe, who is encouraging and working with the government, says, well, let's wait a bit and perhaps Boris will do it. Your views. Harry says, unfortunately, no one seems to care, Nigel. Let's face it, if they did, something would have been done before now. Another says, crisis, 3.5 million illegals entered the US southern border since President Biden opened the borders. Well, it's very interesting. Uh, we learned that 15 people on the suspected terrorist list crossed the US southern border and were detected in May. And no doubt the authorities in America are delighted that they've stopped and detained 15 suspected terrorists. I just wonder how many suspected terrorists weren't stopped. And I also wonder, amongst the 50,000 people that have now crossed the English Channel and are now living in this country in four-star hotels or in private accommodation, I wonder, even if a minute number, even if a fraction of 1% wish us no ill, which is no good in these islands, uh, then we've really stored up a massive problem for our own future. Dave says, it's easily double that figure, the 50,000 figure that I mentioned. We don't count illegals in vans and lorries anymore. Dave, we do, actually. If we detect them, we do. And finally, on your reaction from home. Our immigration system has been broken for 20 years. It won't get fixed overnight, but definitely we feel we are heading now in the right direction. Roll on. British Bill of Rights. Well, the British Bill of Rights is coming, and Martin Howe talked about it, but that's not going to deal with the ECHR problem. No, I firmly believe we have not taken back control. We must complete Brexit. And if we don't, and if the PM doesn't act, then I think they could head for a 1997-style wipeout at the next general election. And I really mean it. Now, of very immediate concern to almost everybody is the family finances. What is going on? We've talked a bit on this programme about central banks. I've talked a bit on this programme about Andrew Bailey, or should I call him Andrew Out to Lunch Bailey, as he's known in the city. Not because he's a bon viveur, but because he never, ever seems to do his job. He certainly didn't when he was at the FCA. Liam Halligan, GB News' economics editor. So we've had in the last 24 hours 
central banks of the UK and the US upping interest rates, would it be fair to say that in order to dampen down inflation, they should have done this a year ago? Oh, absolutely. Central banks across the Western world, Nigel, have been calling these inflationary pressures that I've been warning about, that you've been warning about. Transitory, that was the word. Anybody who didn't think inflation was transitory was some kind of heretic. But it turns out the heretics were right. These are very uh, significant inflationary pressures. These were around before the war in Ukraine. Of course, the war in Ukraine has made them worse, pushing up the price of food and fuel. But already inflation was at a 40-year high in January before President Putin made his move. And what a contrast between the mighty Federal Reserve in America and our own Bank of England in the last 24, 36 hours. The Federal Reserve faced with big inflation. They're not talking about transitory now. Bam, 75 basis point, three quarters of a percent, big interest rate rise, saying to financial markets, saying to American businesses, frankly, we are going to climb on top of this inflation. We are going to dampen it down. You don't need to increase all your prices along the supply chains. You don't need to bargain for much higher wages. But our own Bank of England, it seems to have let off some kind of a damp squib. Yes, interest rates went up, but even with the cover that the Federal Reserve gave them 24 hours before, They've only put up interest rates by pretty much the minimum amount, 25 basis points or a quarter of a percent. The Bank of England badly needed to rebuild its inflation fighting credibility today by with a big interest rate rise to show that it meant business and it failed. And they're projecting inflation now. 11 percent. And that's CPI inflation, not the retail, which is a headline number. Everyone knows that inflation in this country at the moment is easily in double digits. The idea that inflation from the year April 2021 to 2022, the official number is 9 percent. That's a sick joke. If you're trying to keep the family finances together, fill your car up with petrol. That's now 100 quid plus buy some food in the supermarket when food prices have gone up. Rental costs Mm. have gone up. The price of so many things have gone up far more in total than 9%. But even that official number, the CPI, which I think is a woeful underestimate, the Bank of England is now saying that's going to be near a 10 11% come the autumn. And yet, rather than following the Federal Reserve's example with a chunky interest rate it's, rise, it's anemic, wasn't it? It, it was pretty anemic yeah. and it was cautious and it was groupthink, Nigel. That's the thing. You've got three pretty decent external economists among the nine economists on the monetary policy and they rebelled today and they rebelled they went for the 50 basis point half percent increase but all the internals all the kind of career civil servants including andrew bailey they went for the much smaller interest rate rise which in some senses imposes the pain without actually doing the job of seriously suppressing down these expectations of higher inflation It's essential we do that. Funny to me that we always talk about interest rates as if interest rates going up are bad, interest rates coming down are good, as if everyone's got a mortgage. But actually, there's quite a large group of people out there that never get talked about in this country, and they're called savers. They never, ever get a look in in any public debate about interest rates. Why is that? It's because, in general, the Bank of England, central banks have controlled the economy via mortgages, but lots of things have changed. Firstly, there are more houses now owned outright in this country without a mortgage than there are houses owned with a mortgage, because Which, so many of the houses... Again, a fact, uh, a fact that never, An astonishing ever fact, sees, really, light of day. because you know, young working-age families can't buy houses the way that they could just 5, 10, 15 years ago. And also... Because interest rates have been 
been so low for so long, almost anybody who's really thought about it, sorry to viewers and listeners who aren't in this category, they fixed their mortgage anyway for, uh, for five years. 40% of fixed rate mortgages now are for five years mm. and three quarters of mortgages are fixed. So only a quarter of mortgages are those variable rates. But you're right. A lot of people watching and listening to GB News now, to your show, will be savers. They haven't had a return on their mm. savings for ages. Even if they get, you know, a quarter extra of a percent, the banks won't pass all that on. They're very quick to pass on the interest rate cuts. They don't pass on the interest rate rises. Mm. They certainly don't pass them on in full. And of course... It's clear as, as the nose on my face that the interest rate is much lower than the rate of inflation anyway. So these are negative real interest rates. Yes, they are. But, uh, it, but, but at least people feel with rising rates, they're getting something th- for their They money. do, but it just shows you how... how lacking in courage and backbone the Bank of England has been, these are still ultra-low interest rates. And even in this context of ultra-low negative real interest rates, they couldn't even follow the Fed or even emulate know, the Fed I know, I know. and do a 50-point or even a 70... How about a 75-point <coughs> rise in order to shock the markets and say, you know, and, and sterling would go up slightly mm. and then sterling being more expensive means that our, our, our imports aren't as cheap... Uh, aren't as dear, that helps to push down inflation as well. Because sterling's slipping now, it's it's been moving around on financial markets today. But in general terms, the fact that we're rising, our our interest rates are going up slower than the Fed's interest rates, will weaken sterling. sterling That makes our imports more expensive. And we import a lot of stuff, Nigel, not least fuel. No, we do. Final thought. So Boris Johnson in October was saying inflation's nothing to worry about. Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England, got it all wrong. I'll make a prediction to you. You will find the government now blaming the Bank of England for what's happened. And there'll be a big blame game. And there's a possibility for the next election of taking away the bank's independence. And I think that would be a mistake. The problem isn't the the independence framework of the Bank of England. We fought for that. A lot of post-war British history of policy errors, the policy errors errors of the 70s Mm. that you and I lived through, all those fed into forming an independent Bank of England structure, which is the right structure. The fact is that the Bank of England itself isn't using its independence in order to assert itself as an inf- ah. a credible inflation-fighting force. Why? Because it keeps picking you know, committee men on the Monetary Policy Committee rather than people of serious intellect, frankly, who are willing to have independent thoughts and act independently. Think when Gordon Brown, it was one of the good things he did, he set up the Independent Bank of England. You think of that committee back in 1997. It had all kinds of people on it who were from all, not from all walks of life, they were all top economists, but they were renegades. They were grits in the oyster. They were willing to say things and do things that at times attracted ridicule but turned out to to be right. Yeah. That's what we need in our policy making framework. And we've got a blob. Yeah. The we've blob got has a, taken over. The blob's taken over the Bank of I England. Know. Liam Halligan, thank you. Quite an echo there with what Liam said. The Bank of England's got independence, but it's not using it. The United Kingdom, folks, has got independence with Brexit, and we absolutely are not using it because we have not taken back control. What we will do, though, is take a break and come back with Talking Pints. all that drama, I think, we've been discussing today, it may be time for a drink. So, the GB News Tavern is open. We've rolled out the barrel, and I'm joined by Justin Hughes. Justin, good evening. 
Good evening. Cheers. And welcome. Now, to become a fighter pilot in the modern age, I mean, in any age, whether it was the First World War, Second yeah. World War, and it seemed in those days, you know, 10 hours training, you know, here are the keys, off you go, jolly good luck. And some people could do it, and some people didn't last very long. But the modern-day RAF, the RAF that you served in, the RAF that is there today, what are the qualities that a man or woman needs to become a fighter pilot? I mean, you flew, you flew, you flew tornadoes, for example. What kind of character, what kind of levels of fitness are needed? Um, so if you, if you were to ask a sort of general audience about this, you get answers like, you know, good hand-eye coordination, um, good at numbers, things like this. Yeah. And those things are all true learning to fly. So there's a kind of basic bit that it's those things that everybody thinks it are. But then actually flying a fighter jet is more than anything about information management and decision-making quite quickly under pressure. And so it's the ability, there's a kind of core flying bit, but once you get beyond that, you need to get to the stage where that's kind of 10% of your brain power so that you can use the rest of it for doing the job. Uh, and it's really about the ability as much as anything to think clearly under pressure. And I, I'm not really sure how you train that. It, it sort of gets trained by experience and trial and error, and some people proved to be better at it. And I think the military put quite a lot of effort into trying to analyse this because it's quite expensive to train these people. But you think it's aptitude? Um, there's definitely some aspects of it that are aptitude. You know, they do tests on day one that are designed to find the people who've got, yeah. you know, these basic skills. Yeah. Something extraordinary. We, we, we live in an age of, you know, rapidly advancing technology. But there's a, there's a unit out there called the Red Arrows. Yeah. And there I was, you know... In the mall, the other Thursday, the Queen was on the balcony, um, that huge fly pass that we had. And yet, who do they save to the end? But it's the Red Arrows. Yeah. But it's kind of the same Red Arrows I was watching 50 years ago as a kid. And you were a Red Arrow executive officer. Why is the Hawk plane, which is not exactly state-of-the-art mm. anymore, as a, what's the magic of that? I mean, you clearly enjoyed your time. Yeah. In the red What's the magic of it? Why did it, why does it still why did it still in the mail the other day? Yes. Get the Queen looking up smiling. I mean, why does it work for you? You're, you're the you're the person who Well, said that. I, I to me, I suppose what we see are nine people yeah. uh, working together in close formation. We know that it's an incredibly dangerous thing that they're doing, that one little error. Yeah. And it would be catastrophe. Um, it's always a great display. I, I, but what I'm saying is, it, it just year after year after yeah. year, it never seems to lose. Yes, and you, you're kind of right to imply that it's a jet that's been around for a while. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the ultimate raison d'etre of the team is um, PR. So there's not really, albeit people tend to associate with recruitment, there's not really a recruitment problem. There's enough people who want to be fighter pilots. But it's all about public relations and then beyond that, sort of projecting UK PLC. Um, and you could argue that a jet that's like 30 years old maybe doesn't project UK PLC quite as well as we'd like to. But it still seems to somehow. But yeah, I think a, the jet actually works very well. Um, if you see it like the Americans, they obviously they've got display teams, super professional, really, really good. Uh, and they fly much more modern jets. And so they've got much better performance, make more noise. It's super cool. But one of the good things about that jet, the Hawk, is, you know, it's very forgiving. It's a great sort of multi-purpose uh, training jet, um, very sort of versatile and agile. 
but then it, it actually doesn't it's an almost an advantage it doesn't go too fast that you don't want to be doing a huge move you want to do it all tight in front of the crowd mm. and I, I think that's one of the reasons that it stood the test of time that the show is not so much about um, an amazing display of jet performance it's about the complexity of what it, actually it's, happens it's the in front word. of the crowd yeah. Yeah. were you proud to do it? Oh, absolutely, yes. You go through these sort of stages. It wasn't on my radar, so I always find the tornado, and um, there, I kind of thought the Red Arrows was this kind of elite group of superhumans, and, and I was never going to get in. Um, what we had at the time called a Harrier Mafia, they're all Harrier pilots, <laughs> anybody's watching. And, um, and I got the chance, I was doing some flying on the tornado in Cyprus, I got the chance to fly in a backseat uh, practice display. And you know, even though I was a relatively experienced fighter pilot, it was eye-watering. You know, I couldn't quite believe it. And I was fawning over this guy when we landed, saying how great he was. And he looked at me and he said, have you applied to join? And I said, no. And he said, well, if you don't apply, you don't get in. Um, which kind of struck a chord. And I applied. And so you go through this process of applying. And then you get shortlisted. And mm. it's all quite exciting. And you're quite close to it. And then you find you got out, you've got in. You know, it's this amazing feeling. And then kind of reality strikes because then you have to go and do the job. And the first winter is... Stressful is the wrong word, but there's a steep learning curve, you know. It doesn't matter what your background is. It's a great leveller, um, and it's hard work. So you, you kind of... You're immensely excited, and you're proud to have done it, but you're also conscious that you're just the custodian yeah, of this for a very short time. Of course. It's sort of three years you served normally. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, your story there proves one thing in life to everyone at home. If you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. And it's a great thing. What do retired RAF fighter pilots do? And some become airline pilots for a few years. Or, but you've chosen to pick up the yeah. skills and the disciplines that you've learned in the Royal Air Force to become an entrepreneur. Mission excellence. Yeah. So what is it about? What can you, how, how do you, as a, as a former military man, go into a private commercial company and give them value? So... This wasn't anything that was a big clever design. It wasn't like I did anything, any of the things at business school about, you know, what's the exit and the strategy and all the yeah. rest of these things. It was more that I decided to leave the Air Force, didn't really know what I wanted to do, didn't fancy the commercial pilot route at that point, and it was almost like I need to do something else. Um, and so I'd seen other ex-military people doing this sort of thing. And so initially it started off that just running these workshops on high-performance teams, drawing lessons from my previous life, which people seem to really like. But it was only over time that I actually started to really understand how relevant some of it was, that people's opinion of what a fighter pilot does is formed by Top Gun or the news, neither of which are very uh, you know, accurate. They didn't play beach volleyball once. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the reality of it is it's 70 aircraft, 70 pilots taking off from different yeah. bases, different cultures, different nationalities, who've never worked together before, who have to do this really complex task under quite a lot of ambiguity and pressure and get it right first time. And if you sort of really drill into that and start to extract the so core planning, principles... it's performance, it's risk assessments, it's all those things. Yeah, and I, I guess I didn't realise myself how relevant it would be until mm. I'd actually spent a bit more time in the corporate no, no, world. No, it's interesting, it's yeah. interesting. Final thought, Justin. You are, were an early pioneer, an adopter of cryptocurrencies. And governments <laughs> all around the world, of course, have been terrified of them. Yep. Yet in America, where I spend some time, I see you know, the much more widespread use, acceptance, adoption mm. of cryptocurrencies. And yet, at the moment, it's collapso crypto, isn't it? Yes. The prices are... I mean, Bitcoin was 68,000, it's 22,000. Mm. Ethereum was 4,800, it's now 1,100. Um, where, where does crypto go from here? What's its future? 
So, okay, that's a million-dollar question, almost literally. That's why I, I asked yeah, it. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know the answer to it. I got into this a bit by chance in that I was uh, doing a, a master's degree, some sort of intellectual midlife crisis, and I had to do a thesis, and I was going to do it on pandemics. This was in about 2017. Oh, that'll never happen. Don't worry about that. That was exactly the decision. I kind of put this proposal together, <laughs> and I talked about it. It was another guy on the course. Gordon, it was you. And um, he, uh, we sort of talked about it, and he was like, yeah, nobody's interested in this, though. Yeah. So then I, I was looking for something else. Uh, it, was a, it was an international relations degree, so I was looking for something else that was relevant there. Got into cryptocurrency in that sense, more from a sort of governance point of view, but I was analysing, is it a threat to the financial order? Yeah. To which I broadly concluded no, that the adoption wasn't high enough, the utility was too difficult, um, and the pricing, you know, I looked at it then, I think when I did this it was 6000 mm. and I thought, I've missed this, and I, I bought like... $30 or something just so I could test the system which then went up to you know some crazy number it was only $30 and now it would have fallen again and I think this is you know one of the crooks of the problems about the adoption of utility that literally nobody knows I mean there's this argument as pushed to it has no intrinsic value or gold doesn't have an intrinsic value the pound and the dollar don't have an intrinsic Our value paper anymore. money has no intrinsic no. value no. so there is in theory though no reason that it it can't be a viable currency. It's going to be very interesting. It just isn't. There just isn't enough trust or adoption. Not yet, and not after this particular collapse. Justin, thank you very much indeed for joining me on Talking Pints. Thank you. We have a short time left. It is Barrage the Farage, but the first one's for Justin. Robert asks, how much danger is there involved with flying the red arrows given previous incidents? You had one yourself, didn't you? Um, I had a minor one. You've got some good research. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to talk about that. Um, it's, it, it, lo- it looks dangerous, and that's part of the attraction. Yeah. The reality is the training is super intensive, and so it... You know, the, the pilots are operating well within their comfort zone in something that has been de-risked. There's all sorts of safety protocols in place. So it looks um, a lot more dangerous. It's clear you're flying quite close to each other. It does carry an element of risk. Yeah. But I would say, in particular, the public show it is about as safe as it possibly could be. OK. Jim asks me, what's your view on Zelensky fast-tracking EU membership in the midst of a war? Complete madness. What is the point of fighting? Dying, giving everything for the independence of Ukraine and then surrendering it to a group of bureaucrats in Brussels and perhaps a judge in Strasbourg who at 10 o'clock at night can decide that the British government doesn't have the opportunity to send a plane off to Rwanda. I understand why many would want to get as far away from Russia as they can. I get that. I understand that. Uh, But I don't think in the case of the EU that it makes any sense at all. Right, I am done for today. I'm done for this week. I'm back with you on Monday evening at 7 o'clock. Um, Wakefield. I talked about the Conservative candidate at Wakefield. Go to the GB News website and see the extraordinary things he said about the European Union. You may want to scratch your head a little bit. <laughs>